On today's episode, we are going to be talking about Preston's book. Yeah. Also, what are the incentives for putting your spirituality above your sexuality? Plus, we'll be taking questions from listeners. All that and more on today's episode of Sit Down with Sky and Preston. Preston. Sky. <laughs> You're a published author. How does that feel? Uh, good. When I stop to think about it. Yeah. Uh, it's been a very, very busy month working on the book and for like work work. So I haven't really had much time to just sit down and relish the moment, but... You mean you mean it's the podcast good. isn't your full time job? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> with I, all the money that we I have on a this day podcast. job. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's just been super busy, so I haven't like really thought about it. But when I do think about it, it's like, wow, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. God and I had a good little chat and cry on the way to work yesterday. I was just like, this is so nice. Oh, I'm so happy with how it turned out. So, well, I am likewise am happy with what it is. Yeah, here it is. <laughs> I, I finished reading it um, a few days ago. And it is now available on Amazon yep, for yep. paperback or Kindle. Yes. And then hopefully within the next month, uh, recording the audiobook version um, with possibly this very equipment. Yeah. And um, uh, maybe a hardcover down the line. That's not like a big priority, though, because mm-hmm. the paperback's available. So I would like to request a hardcover. Oh, would you? S- okay. Signed. Signed. Delivered. In, okay. Mm-hmm. To my front door. Got it. That'd be great. Yeah, give me a few months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we wanted to today just kind of go into your story a little bit more because you, the first podcast that you were on, the first episode, mm-hmm. you were as a guest and not a co-host. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be a little bit reminiscent of that. It might be a little bit more interviewee. Mm-hmm. But we just wanted to talk more a little bit about your story um, and not give away everything. Because yeah. that's what the book is for, but we want to talk about what what makes Preston tick. And Remy is going to cry in the background the whole time. It's okay. <laughs> it's good background sound. Yeah. Um. So just like some general notes that I had. Mm-hmm. Good notes. <clears throat> yeah. That sounded like I was about to criticize your book. <laughs> I've got some feedback for you. <laughs> now that it's published, <laughs> and you can't go back. Um. I think so. I just to to clear up. I think maybe um, a misconception that people might have mm-hmm. going into this. Um, this book is very much for kind of a broader audience than just LGBT members of the church mm-hmm. and or those who have family members who are LGBT. Yeah. So on Amazon, I could pick two categories to put it under, and so I put it under religion, and I put it under like memoir Mm. so like yeah it's meant to be a little bit broader it's just a story about healing how do you heal from hard things yeah yeah being gay was just like an extra aspect to it It wasn't like the thing about it so yeah it's broadly applicable yeah i thought so and it's um like it has some specific things like it's it's gives good advice to those who may not know how to treat or like what not to say and mm-hmm. what to say to a gay member of the church who may be struggling with one thing or the other. So it gave a lot of like good practical advice for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just a lot of encouragement for facing our own demons, whatever they may be mm-hmm. your implementation of um, using scripture and 
support from family and then obviously your relationship with Christ and with God. And it was just like this package deal Mm -hmm. of how to successfully heal from trauma. really, And like very, um, very real trauma. Like that, that word is thrown around a lot as kind of a joke a lot, but like this is actual trauma leading to PTSD Mm -hmm. and your experience with that. Yeah. And so the, the book is kind of structured to that end. So it, it is pretty chronological the way that the book's set up. Um, I mean, there's a foreword written by uh, David Holland, who used to be my bishop uh, when all of this happened. Um, so that was really cool. He's now a professor at, at Harvard University in Massachusetts. So um, it was just cool to get his forward on that. There's an introduction just kind of giving some caveats to the story, but then it kind of goes in chronological order through the um, eight chapters. Like chapter one's kind of like my upbringing, what led up to the first mission. Second chapter's about that second mission and like what happened. Third mission's kind of about the fallout of third all chapter. The, or what did I say? The third <laughs> mission? <laughs> only two missions. No, there are only two. Yeah. Um, no, the third chapter is about like all the fallout of that first mission. Uh, the fourth chapter was explores the idea of like rekindling hope and how like hope was kind of the first thing to come back. Um, and then chapter five is about rekindling faith, how faith was kind of the next thing to come back, how my faith started to get better and stronger. And then chapter six is about how like that led to then charity and like the ability to then serve again as a missionary and go back out for a second time. And so then the seventh chapter is about that second mission and the eighth chapter is just kind of like, now what? Like Mm -hmm. both missions are completed kind of what a little bit what's happened since. And then I had to write an epilogue because I wrote this manuscript back in 2017. So a lot's happened since I initially wrote this and I didn't feel like I should change the structure of the book. So I just wrote an epilogue that's like, hey, like I got married mm-hmm. and like a, a few other things have happened since I wrote this. Um, and then my mom wrote an afterward. Yeah. Um, so I'm super excited about that part too is she just shared her thoughts and insights of the whole experience. So yeah, I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny how she started that. She's like, <laughs> I, I would really like to meet this person that Preston is talking about <laughs> in this book. <laughs> yes. She would not be my mother if she did not self-deprecate. <laughs> yes. No, she's amazing. Ask anybody else about it, but don't ask her because she won't give you an honest answer. She won't. She'll be like, no, I'm, I, I yelled at you. And I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> she'll say something disparaging about herself. And it's like, no, she's amazing. <laughs> As most mothers are. Yeah. So. Yep. That they are. Um, just another general note I, I picked up from it is just, mm-hmm. you just like so seamlessly switch back and forth between your correspondence with your mom while you're out on your mission mm-hmm. um, and scripture and then the story um, of like the actual chain of events. It was just all weaves together so well. Mm-hmm. Like you draw parallels from the scriptures so, so well, I thought. And a lot of really like striking symbolism. Um, I <laughs> I think I mentioned in the last episode that I um, had recently gotten off my medication mm-hmm. and <laughs> it was like, I feel like my emotions had to kind of reset. Uh-huh. It was an interesting experience. I was very emotional for no reason. 
like we went and saw Top Gun and <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say there are some tears <laughs> like more than usual. Nice. Um, and then th- as I was reading this book throughout the week, I'd be at like Mo Betas or something, getting lunch, reading a part and like looking around, making sure no one was seeing me tearing up in <laughs> the restaurant. Um, anyway, just like very, very poignant symbolism. And and then just your um, going back to your mom and her, the, like how you explain her love. It's very clear that her love wasn't just that surface level, like you do you and mm-hmm. I'll support you no matter what. Like that sort of very fluffy, s- fluffy stuff that we hear so, so much. That's mm-hmm. not very helpful. Um, it was more of like expectations were clear, not in spite of her love for you but because she loves you so much and she knows and like i mean not to spoil the end but (laughs) she knew what would help you in the end yeah so yep and she got in the trenches with me yeah she wasn't it wasn't just you're doing great sweetie it was she got down and dirty as well yeah that was very clear helped me climb out so yeah um I just have some like quotes or parts of the book that really struck me that I wanted to see if you had some extra thoughts about to go into in into more depth. Um, So there's uh, there are a few stories about your youngest brother Mm -hmm. and a lot of health challenges that he experienced and your mom um, helping him through those physical challenges while simultaneously you were having all these spiritual challenges and a lot of the parallels. Yeah, it was so fascinating being in the in it, but it's also been very profound reflecting on it. Of just my my youngest brother Daxton had uh, like bleeding in his brain when he was just like a couple weeks old, um, and so he had like big scar tissue. He's been through in his brain. He's been through multiple brain surgeries. He has like a, a shunt, like a mechanism in his brain that helps his brain drain cerebral spinal fluid and so he this is what he's been his life since he's been a couple weeks old and so he would go through stuff physically right before i would have to confront a problem emotionally and spiritually and so it just became such an interesting parallel and so very instructive for me and my mom to be like wait a minute what Daxon just went through is kind of like what I'm going through, but spiritually it's not as visible. I mean, brain surgery is very obvious when somebody's going through it. There's tubes coming out of their head. They're mm-hmm. in the hospital and whatnot. Whereas like when somebody's in mental turmoil, it's not as obvious, but the parallels were pretty striking. Yeah. I thought so too. And, and it, it, it was hard not to say it was in some way like divinely established, not to say that I went through that just. No, I would agree with that. Like it's a very sacred and special thing to our family. But no, we absolutely believe that Daxton came to us to teach us and help us. And that's why, like, I feel like a bond with Daxton's my buddy. (laughs) Daxton and I are are close. He's great. And you wouldn't you wouldn't know his health challenges. Like I I've met him briefly, but yeah, no, you wouldn't know now because again, he's total miracle baby. He he should have died and he didn't. He should have been vegetative and he wasn't and Mm -hmm. there's so many things that should have happened so many things that should have gone wrong and it just he he got better and yeah bit by bit and so which is another parallel too because like some of the things that happened to me i'm like this should not have ended as well as it did as fast as it did so it's like what the heck 
Well, one of those moments um, from Dexton's story that just like hit me, <laughs> and I think I was at Mobetta's when I read this part, <laughs> um, was he, I, I can't remember exactly the context, so maybe you can go into that, but he was having to do some tests that were really long, and um, at one point he turned to your mom and asked, can we go home now? Mm. Do you want to expound on that? Yeah, so... Um, like I said, he had a shunt. He has a shunt in his brain. And shunts are really temperamental instruments. And so if they malfunction, you need to get a, that addressed quickly because pressure can build on the brain, which can be lethal potentially and cause a ton of problems leading up to that. So um, his shunt like catastrophically malfunctioned, meaning it like wasn't repairable. Like they had to take it out and um, so they tried an experimental brain surgery. It didn't work. So he was at the hospital for like a week waiting to see if this experimental one worked and it didn't. And so then they had to put a new shunt on the other side of his brain in. And so you don't Way know what you're for such a, yeah. And, and he was only, to go through. I think he was like around two or three, like he was, he was talking, he was mm-hmm. verbal and he was also, um, very physical. Like he used to love running and being up and about. So to go through brain surgery, it like messes with you. Like he forgot how to walk. Like he didn't know how to walk anymore. But what was so sad is like he remembered he should know how. And so it was so sad Mm -hmm. to see him like in this state where he's in this hospital bed and literally has tubes coming out of his head and strapped into different things and different monitors. And yeah, he just would constantly ask that question like can we go home now and it just gutted my parents to like hear yeah. that like you're just like Ay. even that just that image just is, yeah it has that reaction in me as well just oh i bet such a helpless like it, it has parallels to obviously yeah. our son milo and um all that he went through and what like having to just watch him go through all these things him he, he lived for about 24 days um mm-hmm. in the NICU and had a lot of procedures, a lumbar puncture, um, a chest tube, like all these different things that he had to go through. And he couldn't verbalize anything like because of the breathing tube, Mm -hmm. but he, his face would wince Mm. when we knew that he was in pain. Well, and I'm sure you guys were asking that question of, can we just go home with him now? Kind of that one. (laughs) Yeah. And again, like it was such a good, well, let me first just say too, Daxton was textbook submissive to the procedures and to my parents comforting. And I mean, they did their best to comfort him and maybe distract him a little bit of like, no, let's watch a movie instead. Or like, let's, let's talk or let's do something and let's listen to this song you like. And they did their best to like divert attention away from going home because it wasn't possible. He, he couldn't go home yet. Yeah. He still had to do more at the hospital, but it became like a metaphor, like a good parallel for, some of my experiences at the time were like, I was super depressed and super angry and, and so sad at the same time. And just often found myself asking that question. Can I just go home now? Can I be done with this experience? Can I be done with this life? Like it was that heavy. And Daxon just taught me how to submit to the will of the father. Like, no, it's not done yet. Like life is worth living um, even if it's hard and un- hard to understand. And no, you trust the people who are helping you, that are there with you through it all. Um, you just submit to the tests and then eventually they're over and you can go home. But 
it's just it was such a beautiful parallel of mm-hmm. of humility really yeah I, I i realize we should probably just to give context um for those maybe not as familiar with your story a lot of this um your healing is due to on your first mission experiencing um sexual and emotional abuse mm-hmm. you should maybe give the kind of that context sure yeah so I, I know in like the first episode I was in on this podcast, I gave just like a quick mm-hmm. little overview of everything. But I uh, I went on my first mission and was and experienced some abuse from a companion there and came back very broken uh, because of all that. Was diagnosed with PTSD and all of my PTSD triggers were church things and mission things. So like I just I hated going to church. I hated church things because they just reminded me of the trauma and so that was kind of like the state I was in when, when that experience happened with Daxton is um, I finally, it, it had been about two years and I finally wanted to like start getting better, but I didn't really know how. And so that was like one of the first few things that happened mm-hmm. um, at that time was Daxton was going through all this stuff physically. And it was like, wait a minute, if he can do that physically, I think I can do it spiritually and emotionally too. So that's, that's cool. And it's, um, again, just a parallel to my life, like Milo mm-hmm. for a, Milo in a lot of ways, um, healed a lot of things in our lives, mm-hmm. um, just by existing and yeah. like, just being there. Like he helped to mend a, a lot of relationships in their family and, mm-hmm. um, just did so much just by existing. Yep. There's an, there's another, um, story going back to Daxton and your mom. Um, and uh, one of those other just heart wrenching experiences where your mom had to hold him down for a procedure. Uh, um, man, this one I, I have thought about a lot because it's still relevant, but, um, this was a little bit earlier in his life. Like he was still not young and nonverbal. Um, so he was still pretty much baby maybe even Remy's age. Like, I'm not sure exactly how old he was, but he was, he was younger. And, um, and again, shunts malfunction. So he was starting to show signs of a malfunction, which we had all been sick that week and throwing up. And so my mom figured he just had the bug that all of us had in the house, but that's a sign of a malfunction. And so you have to go get it tested just to be sure that his shunts not malfunctioning. Um, and so they had to, I don't know the name of the procedure. I, I think it's a CAT scan or something like that, but um, like it wasn't an MRI, uh, nothing like that intense, but it was some sort of procedure where he needed to hold still um, so that they could get a clear snapshot of what was going on. And so they had to put his head in a foam wedge to like keep him from wiggling his head. So his head is stuck and they had to strap his arms and his legs down so that he wouldn't fidget. Um, and it was like, it wasn't like intense enough that my mom couldn't be in the room. She was given permission to like get on the table with him. And like, so she's right there by him talking to him, uh, uh, like touching his face and singing and trying to get his attention. But he was screaming through the whole procedure. My mom said, and would just would not have it. And so she's there crying with him trying to help hold him down and keep him calm she knows he's not in any danger like she knows this is necessary that this is important but she can still be there and cry with him while he's screaming his head off about how 
unfair this must seem to him or uncomfortable or whatever. I mean, she had a lot of speculation of what he might have said if he could talk. Something like, why are you doing this to me? Why don't you pick me up? Like, um, I don't like this or whatever. Fill in the blanks. That's why this is pretty profound is because it could mean a lot of different things. But, But then once the test was over, he was in her arms and consoled and they could move on. And, and we saw like the parallel to like what I was doing. I was screaming and wailing and so mad at God about like what was happening in my life that I realized I, he was probably right there in my face and I was too frantic that I didn't notice. And he knew the test would last forever. He knew it would be over and he knew that as soon as it was over, I'd be back in his arms and okay again. But It was just a beautiful metaphor of like, we want it to end right now. We want suffering to end right now. And I think sometimes we're so frantic, we don't realize that Christ is right next to us, crying with us because he is that kind of person. He wants to be there, um, engaging in it with us. And he knows that we're not in real long-term danger. Mm-hmm. it's just a test. And and if you move, it's going to mess up the test. So I have to hold you here mm-hmm. until the test is over and then we can move on. Then we can get up and go do something else. But I have to hold you here until the test is done. It also just like kind of gives some insight into um, the, the, the love that heavenly father and, and Christ have for us and how difficult it probably is to, I mean, we're right now, um, go like sleep training, Remy, and and having to, um, we're trying all sorts of things. Um, but right now we're trying like some of the cry it out method, where mm-hmm. you let them cry for a certain amount of time, and then go in and console them, and come back out and like let them cry again, and just kind of repeat this process. And the the other day, I think it was the first time we tried it. She cried for so long, and she, I was like, I was at work watching from. Um, like the our outlet camera mm-hmm. and Amanda was trying to get her down and she got to the point where she was like too cry too tired to cry anymore and she was kind of whimpering mm-hmm. and it like just hurt us so yeah. much. Um but just like having I guess relating that to this experience, how difficult it would be um in your mom's position and then also in God's position to have a higher mindset like to have greater understanding about what's what's happening and the necessity of what's happening and not being able to stop it mm-hmm. and obviously like with christ and his sacrifice that's probably the most poignant example mm-hmm. of god not being able to step in and, and fix such suffering yeah and I know you've talked about that before too, how like there is this natural parental instinct to want to end suffering. Yeah. But, or, or like avoid it altogether for your child. But you know intellectually, like that that's not always good for the child either. Again, Daxton needed that test done to know if the shunt was malfunctioning or not. Like that needed to be done uh, for his overall well being. And yeah, again, it's just a really profound parallel to any who suffer and and particularly any who suffer and feel like God is not there. Because again, I was so frantic and so mad and so angry that I wasn't willing to recognize that God was with me in it all. 
it, it was this, where are you? Why aren't you ending this? Why aren't you doing something about this? And again, he's right there next to me crying with me because the test can't be ended prematurely, but he'll at least keep me company in it. And if I would calm down, maybe, maybe something else could have happened sooner if I would have just calmed down and enjoyed his presence rather than screamed about where it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in all that franticness, I would have missed it. Well, this might be a good place to ask the question. Um, a lot of people might be thinking, was there any tendency or did you at all blame God or the church for what happened? And what was your experience with that? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. Like, I, I went through the typical cycle of, like, I've I've read up on PTSD and, and victims of sexual abuse and emotional abuse and I, I followed that typical pattern of, of victim mentality. At first, you're like in denial about it or you're trying to help your, you're trying to shield your abuser and it's just, you make excuses. And it, like, I, I can't remember all of them now. I mean, it's been years since it was relevant to read them, but I I went through all those basic things and it's weird that like I never, I don't know, I don't remember being super resentful towards the church it's like i went straight to god i was like (laughs) you like you were the one that sent me to japan you were the one that set me up for like i felt like god set me up for failure so it's kind of like and i think that's because I, i already had a very personal relationship with god so like it felt like a betrayal so it was just like what why would he do this so I kind of skipped the church. I'm like, whatever, get out of the way. Like I'm talking to the main guy and like, what the crap? Like, why didn't you do something? And, um, I had to learn some hard lessons and swallow some hard pills about like why it happened. And, um, and yeah, I had to get some help overcoming that false view of God that I had again, that like he set me up. Like that's, I've since learned that's not, that's not God. Like he doesn't do that. Um, but those were some hard pills to swallow. Yeah. And then also I, I remember like one distinct, like I, I, we tried counseling, we tried medication, we tried all kinds of things and we finally, and none of it was working. And so I, we finally found um, a doctor and I can't remember the technical term for it, but it was some kind of like emotional reading and clearing negative emotional energy and things like that. And, and I, I don't remember like the, the name of it, but it's a common method like I've since met a lot of people who have tried this and I I didn't tell him what happened on my mission I went in and just said look I have PTSD I'm not going to tell you why I can't sleep because I have really bad night terrors but if you can help me sleep you're hired like I will come back and do whatever you tell me to do if like you can help me cope with not being able to sleep and he read me like a book and like one of the like main emotions he picked up that day was like you are grieving like somebody who's lost a spouse or somebody who's lost a a sibling or a a parent he's like you're grieving the loss of like a family member and it's god that's died it's like you were so close to god and all of a sudden he's no longer there and i got in the car afterward and just (laughs) bawled i i it was like the kind where you're like hyperventilating because you're crying so hard and i was like mom where is god like he was right like where is he like he just vanished and that's why i felt so vent like spiteful for so long i was kind of going through the grieving process as well of like where did god go 
and yeah, once you once I got all that out of my system, then it was <laughs> then there was room to like heal and like re reestablish that relationship with God, or I don't know the right word, maybe rekindle. You kind of you kind of had to get rid of a Restore. lot of um, ideas of who you who who you thought God was after yeah. that experience, and then yep, once you're able to form a clearer picture, that's when the healing started. Yep, well said. Yeah, I had some pretty false ideas about the nature and character of God, and we we burnt those out. <laughs> yeah, you know, we we got rid of those. I think we all do, to some mm-hmm. extent, for sure. I really like the symbolism that you use to um, describe what PTSD is like. Oh. Um, so you had like an official diagnosis, mm-hmm. and you uh, I guess it was more that your psychiatrist or um, uh-huh. counselor described. No, he was a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, so he was the third professional that I had gone to see and, and he was a psychiatrist by trade. Um, and I I remember his description of PTSD because it made the most sense to me. Um, I, it helps to first know what it is because then you can grapple with it once Mm -hmm. you know what it is. And so he, he likened it to like a movie score. Um, that's the name of the music, right? Mm -hmm. In a movie. So he compared it to like music in a movie. How like when you're going through trauma, it's like a horror movie scene and scary horror music playing in that scene. So like this, you go through this traumatic event, it's horrible and there's scary music playing. He's like, the problem with PTSD is you'll then be in like a normal drama scene or romantic scene or comedy scene, but it's horror music playing. And that that resonated with me. I love movies. So I was like, I totally understood that metaphor. I'm like, yeah, like that's what PTSD felt like. I'd be in a normal everyday situation and I would be panicking and like freaking out and feeling like I needed to run um, because that horror music was playing in the background of my mind. It was just a good metaphor. And yeah. I mean, you're I, a videographer. I, like I'm sure you can relate to that. Yeah, I definitely too. related to that. And like, cause in, in the film world, sound is often like the last thing that new filmmakers will pay attention to, um, which is tragic just because it's shown like it's proven that audiences are a lot more forgiving of bad visuals than they are bad sound. Like Interesting. if there's bad quality sound, it's just glaring. Huh. So it just like t- goes to show just how powerful sound is. And in this case, music like music completely changes the scene mm-hmm. and the feeling of a scene. Yeah. And that's the thing with PTSD is again, then you start to misinterpret situations because mm-hmm. your emotions are all over the place and they're not clearly representative of what's actually going on. So mm-hmm. it's like, so that's, that's the problem is like you get a trigger and it sets all those things off when you're safe. Like I remember like when I first got home and, my mom could tell that I hate, I was starting to pull away from church stuff and didn't like it. And she offered like, why don't we read together? Like I can, like, you don't have to come to family scripture study. Like what about just you and I do a fam- uh, like a, a, a personal study together. And it, it lasted one session <laughs> because we started reading the book of Mormon and I panicked. Like I had I mean, now I know it was a panic attack, but at the time I didn't know what it was. And I just lashed out and I was like, this is dumb. Like, I'm blah, blah, blah. And I said some like really angry, hurtful things. And my mom was just like, whoa, like, <laughs> okay, this is off limits now too. And it was just like, yeah, horror music 
where it shouldn't have been playing. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I loved the scriptures, but the problem was, is like when the abuse was happening, I'd hide in the bathroom and read my scriptures. Right. So then I start tying in my head scriptures to abuse. And so then you read the scriptures later and it's like, ah, I'm like mm-hmm. back in that abuse moment. And it, yeah, it was a hot mess. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. PTSD sucks. <laughs> I'm going to bring a few questions here from some listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from... Um, Jess underscore Shro on Instagram. She says, what part of the book was the hardest to write? Which was the best part to write? Ooh, that's a good question. You would think that writing about the, the abuse would be the hard part, but I don't remember writing about it. Like that's actually something I wrote like back when it first happened. And then I just kind of like polished it to add it to the book um, and cut out some details that just weren't relevant um, but I, I remember writing that when I first got home from my first mission. And so, yeah, cause like I wrote it all out in chronological order and everything that had happened on my mission. And that's how I told my, my mom and my dad and, and Bishop Holland, what had happened was like, I had just written it down and I didn't want to talk about it. I just gave them the document. So, I mean, I guess that part was hard to write, but that's the oldest part of the manuscript. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that counts but i think it it was hard to find the balance of like what to cut (laughs) um i think just overall that that's the hardest part of writing this story was there there were so many beautiful intricate details that i know about and have a record of but i cannot fit into a reasonable Mm -hmm. book size so and also, like, there's just things I can't share with other people. Um, I think I've said it on here before. If not, I will say it now. But it's just I, I hate my least favorite spiritual impression is the spiritual impression to hold back mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And I maybe because I'm extra, but <laughs> but I just don't like that feeling of like, no, that needs to be private. Because I am very open. And so it's, I just don't like it when I'm told like that you should keep to yourself. So there were a lot of things like that. Like I couldn't write it all. We can relate, Matt and I can relate with that. We, um, like with sharing our story, we are very open. Um, Sometimes I think too much so. And so we have to, (laughs) we have to remember to like, we we meet someone and, and like form an instant connection and just want to like, share Tell everything them all the things yeah. um but we have we have to we've had to learn how to hold yeah. back <laughs> yep and and again like there just no like there there were some beautiful wonderful spiritual experiences that aren't in the book because they're too sacred and i didn't trust them with just the general public but i'm i'm much more likely to share them in a one-on-one situation so yeah. if you ever meet me ask <laughs> um but i think the 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 easiest part to write um, was the first chapter, like my upbringing, like that was easy. It's like my parents made it easy to write about it. So it was like, I, I loved writing that part was just cause I was got to reflect on just like how wonderful my childhood was growing up again, like typical problems growing up, but nothing crazy and out of the ordinary. And so, um, that probably would have been the easiest part. Mm-hmm. It's just like, my parents are great. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> they are great. I've only met them in person once, but I mean, I've heard their story. <laughs> <laughs> You've read some of it. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, this one is for me. This is from shells underscore bell 13. Skylar, as a reader, what do you hope people will take away from Preston's book? Um, so Good question. I don't know if it's like a hope or just a inevitability that <laughs> <laughs> reading Those are almost synonymous, actually. Yeah. <laughs> reading the book, um, like, like I said, it is very encouraging. Um, and while reading it, you will feel empowered to like take control of your own difficulties in life, whatever they may be, no matter to the extent of like how extreme they are taking control of them and not letting them control you. Like it's, Mm. it's kind of as simple as that because you, I mean, you struggled, like you said, you had a lot of bitterness, a lot of things to work through. It's not like it was picture perfect, but Throughout it all, um, you were humble enough to listen to the advice from all of those around you that were that had such good advice. I love all the advice I, that you got. Well, and I would just interject. I eventually uh, like yeah. listened. <laughs> I, I did not initially. Sure. That's um, understandable. <laughs> yeah, but but to your point, like that's when the healing really started happening. Was when mm-hmm. I finally was like, "This is my problem." Like. I need to do stuff about it and stop pointing fingers everywhere else. Let me just... That helped a lot. (laughs) Let me just pull out one of the... There's a lot of good advice that you got from a lot of family members. Mm -hmm. Um, But let me just like pull up one of them just to give the listeners a taste. A little (laughs) teaser. Um, Let's see. It was with your brother. Where is it? My brother, Trevik? No, your older brother. Yeah, Trevik. Oh, yes, Trevik. <laughs> it's a very unique name. I've never met another Trevik, so. Okay, so you were talking with Trevik, and he was giving just some advice. Um, this is a quote. I know you hate hearing that. This is Trevik. I know you hate hearing that Jesus knows what you're going through, but can I you think of. I hated hearing that phrase. <laughs> but can you think of it in the reverse instead, he asked. Don't you now know what he went through? Don't you now know what he felt for you? Um, and I just really liked that, like turning that idea on its head because it was mm-hmm. something that you needed. It sounds like you needed to hear or like to learn, but oh yeah, definitely. phrasing it in that way um, was not going to get through to you. So he, yeah. he flipped it on his on its head, and I think that's a really good way to look at it because it really just personalizes the atonement. Yeah, because a lot of times we just think of like Christ knows what we went through, which is true. Mm-hmm. But to but some when extent, you're in distress, that doesn't do anything. That doesn't help. Yeah. Because it doesn't alleviate the distress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Cause that, that's why I hated that phrase was just like, people would say that to me or I would just hear it in church. Cause that's one of those like parroted catchphrases that you hear in church is Jesus knows what you're going through. And I'm like, that doesn't help me. Like I don't want to be alive right now. <laughs> like I don't care if he, knows what I'm feeling like that doesn't fix what I'm feeling and and also then I felt guilty because then I felt like I was like projecting my depression and PTSD onto Christ and I'm like cool now two people are miserable like (laughs) that doesn't make me feel better about myself but yeah Trevik was like and 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 I I was mouthy my family was like no you weren't that bad and I'm like I remember being just angry (laughs) all the time and vengeful and just spiteful I just spit poison all the time venomous but Trevik had heard me say that one time like and and angrily about like I hate that phrase and this was like weeks later I still remember where I was I was 
walking on campus on my way to class. I was right there at the corner of the hill at BYU. That's right by Brick Oven. Oh, yeah. Um, And he called me and I was just like, what? And he was emotional and was like, hey, like I've thought about this. I've prayed about it. I've fasted about it. I've taken this to the temple. I've just, I'm trying to understand why you hate that phrase so much. And he was like, you think about it the other way. Like, yes, Jesus knows what you're going through, but don't you now know some of what he went through for you? And I don't know why, but like it, it blew my mind. Like it just, (laughs) I, I was like, wait, what? Like, the atonement isn't about fixing all ills in the moment. Like the atonement is about him knowing what it feels like. So he can then offer the best kind of help. Like Christ knows this stuff. Like he, he stepped into all these problems. Like it was just mind blowing at the time. I was like, who does that? Like, why would he willingly step into all of these problems? Cause this is hell. Like I hate this feeling why would he willingly step into all of this? And then you find out it's because he wants to help you and keep you company and help strengthen you. And I was like, I need to get to know this person. Like it was such a wake up call of like, I don't know Jesus. Like I don't, I thought I knew about him, but I clearly don't know him, the person. Mm. So anyway, yeah, just, Ooh. And again, (laughs) all Trevik had to ask was just like, can you think about it in the reverse instead? And the Holy ghost ran with that and blew my mind. I, a lot of the book is obviously about your interactions and relationship with your mom. Um, and she is definitely the hero of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also a lot of, a lot of these other unsung heroes who, um, who ha- like pay- played a big part in your yeah. healing. Like several siblings that were siblings or aunts. Yeah. yeah. Several aunts and uncles and yeah. Well, and okay. I'm, I'm glad you actually said that. Cause this is something I, I probably should have put in the book. Sorry, dad. (laughs) But I I need to do like a shout out to my dad because uh, my dad's a paramedic. So I'm going to use some terms that he uses as a paramedic. My mom was the first responder. My mom was the person that was like on the scene taking care of me. Like, again, in the trenches. She could not have done that without the support of my dad behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that kind of relationship with my dad. I did not trust to share like those deep raw wounds with anybody except my mom. She was the only person I would show my breaking heart to, but she couldn't have handled that without the support of my dad. So like he wasn't a first responder, but he definitely was involved. Like he, and I'm not as like privy to some of those experiences. Um, Those are more my mom's experiences where he was a support to her so that she could be a support to me. But just shout out to all you parents out there and family and friends that try and help somebody in distress. Like not everybody is meant to be at the first responder in the trenches with that person. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you play a more supportive role um, that you're helping the helper because they need it. Yeah. Like my mom couldn't have done it without all of these family members rallying behind her that I was ignorant to at the time. Like I didn't know what was happening. It probably would have made me angry to learn about it at the time. So (laughs) it's probably for the best that I didn't know about it, but yeah, like shout out to my dad and all those family members that helped my mom. So she could help me. 
Well, that's very like very similar to my experience as well. I'm definitely closer to my mom mm-hmm. um, and confide in her more. But my dad provides like that quiet structure where he's not mm-hmm. like he doesn't require applause for what he does. And he just kind of works behind the scenes to create this environment where um, our family can thrive and be mm-hmm. successful. Where those other relations can flourish as right. well. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well put. Um, let's see. Another question here. Um, Preston, this is another one from um, Shells Bell 13. Preston, looking back on your experiences, would you change anything? <laughs> or um, maybe what wouldn't you change? <laughs> if I could change anything, I would have changed my, my attitude sooner. Um, <laughs> because that's the only thing I could have controlled. There are some things that like I couldn't control. But definitely I would have healed sooner if I would have humbled myself sooner again, I resisted a lot of this help. Initially, I was trying to bite the hand that was feeding me. And so, yeah, if, if I could go back and change anything, that would definitely be one thing is just, I would have not been as bitter as long. Cause again, once I finally made that decision to stop, I, I just got tired of being angry and bitter. It just, it's exhausting. It requires so much energy and, I just got tired of it. So if I could go back, I would just get tired sooner, I guess. (laughs) And I just had another thought too. And this is, this is for anybody that finds themselves in a compromising situation. I would have said something sooner. I I didn't know how to vocalize that I was being sexually abused and emotionally abused. Partly because some of it, I didn't really, I was in denial at first. Like I didn't really recognize like the, the seriousness of what was going on at first. Um, but I was so naive that like, that's one other thing that I would change if I could go back. I just would have said something sooner. Um, and I don't understand all of why I just couldn't say something. It was easier for me to come out to my mission president than it was to tell him I was sexually abused. Like that's, that's how much like bottled up the abuse was. And and I don't know why I'm sure there's some psychological explanation to why abuse affects victims that way. But I, I, I couldn't talk about it and I wish I would have said something sooner because now that I know how support, how much support can come your way when you do finally vocalize it, I should have said something sooner or or I guess I should say I, I could have said something sooner. So Hindsight is 2020. Yeah. Well, cause now, well, let me give this example then. Like, so that I go back out on my mission a second time stateside. If anybody tried any crap there, like it would not, it would have ended way differently because I knew better. And so it's like, I, I guess I just wish I would have given myself permission to walk away from that, like really not good situation. And I just didn't know I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know how to, whereas like now it's like, I would have just left like, <laughs> bye, I'm going to go to the mission home. <laughs> like, uh, it's not safe here, but I, I just didn't know that then. So shout out to anybody in distress, like get yeah. help, get out of those situations. You're not going to heal in those situations. So that's a, that's some good, good advice for sure. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, I don't want to. I don't want to end this because it's so great. But we also want people to read the book, so we can't like <laughs> go over everything as much as I want to. There was one more question though for Jasmine. Yeah, yeah. Like I, that is one. 
that's where I would want to end it because I okay. loved her question. This is from um, the the um, the account is on TikTok. It's um, Scripture Plus. Um, the the name of the girl that that um, runs it is called is named Jasmine. I don't know why that was so hard to say. <laughs> um, but her her uh, question was: Are there any specific scriptures that inform your perspective or have been a particular comfort to you? Yeah, and I knew <laughs> like when we were planning, and he like read that question, I was like, I know exactly what I want to tell Jasmine because I, yeah, I got on like this big old study spree about like the idea of carrying your cross. And so it led me to a whole bunch of scriptures, but there were two in particular, Mark 15, 30 and Galatians 2, 20. Um, Mark 15 talks about how people were mocking Christ on the cross. They said, save thyself and come down from the cross. And I'll just, I'll just read this paragraph from my book. That taunting invitation from the world to spare myself the pain of temperance is a siren call of comfortable and convenient conformity to customs and cultures that would kill me forever. I have no intention of heeding them. So each time the world calls me to save myself and come down from my cross to live a worldly lifestyle, I say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And that's Galatians 2.20. I just love that concept of carrying your cross and... So many people are like, come off the cross. Like, why are you on the covenant path? Why are you pursuing all of this? I'm like, because Christ is here and he's the one that healed me and saved me. Like, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I am not coming down from here. Like, you may see it as this horrible, like, m- masochistic thing to do. Of like, <laughs> oh, he's bottling himself up or he's holding himself back and he's not living his truth whatever silly things they say about it. It's All just, of our Twitter or TikTok <laughs> followers. But it's just, no, like Christ is found here and I will carry any cross I have to, to be associated with him. So he's the one that healed me. I like that. Good, good parallel. Just an example of, like I said earlier, your ability to, to draw parallels from the scripture. is very, um, I like symbols. Yeah. Yeah. They help. Very, like in in sac not sacrament in um Sunday school and, and things like you'll talk about scriptures and and most of the comments are just kind of like very surface level and and things like that. Every once in a while there there'll be something that's very profound and like makes you really stop and think. It was every scripture that you quoted and like drew a parallel from in in the book had that level of complexity to it. Cool. So just another shout out there yep and i have to just say i'm sorry that i had to cancel the pre-order oh, yeah. <laughs> but but the kindle version people. and the the paperback are available on amazon so yeah and um i give it five thumbs up <laughs> two stars <laughs> two thumbs up five stars 10 out of 10 i don't know what other uh, what other review method to use here um <laughs> But yeah, we had some more questions. Maybe we'll get to in the next episode. Mm-hmm. There were good questions. Too. Yeah. Thank you for all of the questions and we'll hopefully get to them. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm. And thank you for buying Preston's book. Yeah, thanks. Because <laughs> <laughs> we just assume you did. Yeah, thanks. So thanks for that. We will see you in the next one. Bye. Bye.